We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Fascinating turn of events uh, happening in the House of Commons. The Prime Minister yesterday saying that CSIS did not tell him uh, about what was going on with Michael Chong and his family being targeted uh, by the Chinese Communist Party and interference and such. Uh, Michael Chong doubling down today in the House of Commons. Another article in the Globe and Mail today saying that is not the case, that the, uh, that CSIS had sent this information to various government uh, agencies and such back in 2021. It is getting pretty ugly. And Charles Burton, who we've had on the show several times, senior fellow with the Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad at the Macdonald Laurier Institute, tweeted this the other day. And again, the Globe uh, article underneath this, CSIS confirms to MP that he and his family were targeted by China. And Charles writes, I feel strangely saddened to have to conclude that the only option is for the Prime Minister to accept ministerial responsibility and resign. How it got to this is hard to fathom. To talk about uh, all of this, Charles Burton with a senior fellow, Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad at the Macdonald Laurie Institute. Charles, uh, thanks for taking the time. Hope you're well. I'm good, Scott. Uh, I wish I was better. It seems like a lot of things that you and I have been talking about for a long time are all coming true, like a bad, you know, like a bad nightmare. But it is, uh, uh, I mean, it is what it is. And the Prime Minister, you know, either misled Parliament or got wrong information when he said that CSIS had been withholding the information about the harassment of Mr. Chong's family by the, you know, diplomat who was still on the list at the Chinese Consul General in Toronto, Jawe. And, you know, as you said, I, I mean, that's, we have a Westminster parliamentary system and it's supposed to be when your underlings screw up that you resign. And I really don't see any other option except resignation. I think it looked as if yesterday that the prime minister was going to throw CSIS under the bus yeah, and say, you know, they didn't give us the information uh, two years ago and they should have. And I told them they must do that in future. But it turns out that that is not accurate, that in fact, CSIS had spread this information far and wide um, and it had been, you know, shoved into the back of a drawer, evidently. So, you know, this is this is a, a terribly serious matter for Canada. I mean, you know, this is the Chinese government trying to pressure a member of parliament to change how they vote and what proposals they bring forward to our parliament. And, you know, that really crosses a red line. And the fact that the government did not act in a in a vigorous and timely fashion to expel the diplomat that we know was involved um, and continues to sort of give us a word salad on it suggests to me that, that they're, uh, you know, they're just at, at a loss as to what to do beyond uh, apologizing and, and giving away their post to someone else who presumably has no conflict of interest in this matter. Um, how surprised are you that he's throwing CSIS under the bus this way? And I'm surprised that he didn't think somebody like Michael Chong would call him out on it. Um, he's sowing seeds of doubt in Canadian institutions, creating the divisiveness he accuses everybody else of doing. Yeah, it is very disappointing. I mean, even if it was true that that CSIS had sat on the report and had not distributed it, the prime minister is still ultimately responsible for these agencies. You know, they keep saying, oh, they're independent and everything, but, you know, their heads are appointed by government. They are civil servants and there is ministerial responsibility. And so if CSIS had made such a horrendous miscalculation, um, it's still the responsibility of Minister Mendicino and ultimately the Prime Minister. Now we find out that CSIS, in fact, had acted correctly, and that makes it even worse in the sense that it seems that the government was either, you know, they were misinformed by their immediate um, staff or they knew about it and were not being honest uh, about this matter. I mean, Prior to that, you know, there were several questions in the House of Commons saying, when did the minister know about this? And they refused to answer and refused to answer and refused to answer. And then they said, oh, just last Monday when we read it in the Globe and Mail. So if you only knew about it last Monday, why didn't you just say that in the first place? You know, this sort of shifting back and forth and up and down 
and uh, not answering questions or, or um, you know, giving out promises that are not being fulfilled is a bit troubling. I mean, the latest is that we've heard that Minister Jolly has called in the Chinese ambassador, which should lead to the expulsion of at least that that Chinese official that we now know all about, uh, Zhao Wei. But, uh, you know, so far we haven't heard of any expulsion and why not? No, if so, you can't be if you can't be declared persona non grata for interfering with a, an elected member of parliament, uh, exactly what does it take to be declared persona non grata? So Justin Trudeau blamed CSIS yesterday. Michael Chong comes out today in the House of Commons saying that simply is not true. CSIS have told him that uh, the Prime Minister's office, these various agencies, all got the information. So what the Prime Minister said, as you said, being very uh, delicate, is factually incorrect yesterday in what he said by shoving this on to uh, CSIS. So what happens now, Charles? I mean, they're having a convention this weekend. What happens now? Yeah, I mean, I, I would think that a, a lot of members of the Liberal caucus will be very concerned about what will happen to the Liberal Party in the next election if Canadians have really lost confidence in, you know, their integrity to serve Canada and not be subject to elite capture by a hostile foreign regime. And the honesty of, of our politicians does seem to be in question and I mean, all sorts of other things, you know, setting up the special rapporteur that we find out is a close friend of the prime minister. You know, all of these things just don't don't smell right. And, and I think a lot of Canadians may feel that this government has passed its best before date and it's time to give them a rest and bring uh, someone else into power. And so, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if at the next convention there's not of the Liberal Party, which is coming up and featuring... Sort yeah. of blast from the from the two thousands. I mean, they're having Hillary Clinton and John Craychan speak to them, that they may not try and convince the prime minister that this would be a good time for him. It's too late to take a walk in the snow, but maybe hmm. a walk in the spring flowers and 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 uh, move on. It'd be hard to believe that this is not a major topic and his leadership at this convention as a result of, of what uh, Michael Chung has said today. Charles Burton with a senior fellow, Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad at the McDonnell-Laurier Institute. Charles, always a pleasure. Thanks for the time. Be well. Great to speak with you. I'm sure we've got more on this coming up. They constantly make decisions around what is a credible threat, what is a non-credible threat. They are professionals who make that evaluation. And what I'm saying is, even if it's a less than threshold threat, according to their views, if it regards an MP or an MP's family, it should be passed up uh, going forward. All right, that was the Prime Minister yesterday saying that basically this was CISA's issue, that he did not get information. And right out of the Globe and Mail again today, uh, CISA's report on MP being targeted by China was sent to Prime Minister's National Security Advisor, his office, and various departments back in July 20th of 2021. Uh, Michael Chong stood up in the House of Commons today and basically said that the Prime Minister is misleading Canadians with what he is doing and what he is saying. Uh, this does not seem to be going away. We're going to talk to Dr. Ian Lee, Associate Professor of Sprott School of Business, Carlton, about uh, the federal service strike, But we'll, and we will. But uh, I wanted to get his take on all of this first. Ian, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Doing very well. Thank you, Scott. What are your thoughts on the comments the Prime Minister made yesterday, basically kind of throwing CSIS under the, under the bus for all of this, and then boom, today, another allegation and, and, and the MP standing up in the House saying that's just simply not true, the Globe echoing the same story. Yeah. Where, what's happening here? In, what's, the, what's the buzz in Ottawa, Ian? Right. I think the government is in a full-grown crisis, full-blown crisis, excuse me. Um, I've, I've long been fascinated because there's a literature, a rich literature in crisis management. I'm talking really huge crisis. I'm talking the Exxon Valdez oil spill some 25, 30 years right. ago, destroying the Alaskan coast. I'm talking the poisoning of the Tylenol that killed some people in Chicago 25 years ago. The Maple Leaf Listeria. Those were private sector crises where the very credibility of the CEO and the company and the brand was at stake because it was horrible what was happening. And they have become Harvard Business School case studies in crisis management decision making. 
And some were terrible. Some CEOs flunked and did a terrible job, you know, deny, deny, deny. No, 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 not our oil tanker, you know, somebody else's. And they tried to point the finger at somebody else. And then some turned out to be case studies in brilliant strategic response. The Maple Leaf Listeria, the CEO did a brilliant job and is yeah. widely considered. Where I'm going on this is not to change the topic, it's there are lessons. And every lesson that's come out of every one of these case studies is when you're in a crisis and you've been caught with your pants down, you'll go to the microphone and say, look, I'm sorry. I screwed up, we messed up, but we are gonna fix it. That's the only solution. You can't keep doubling down and pointing the finger and pointing the finger and pointing the finger because you know, people, you're, you're losing your credibility. You're, it's the most precious uh, asset. It's not money, it's trust in your integrity. And when you stand up in the House of Commons and say, hey, I didn't have a clue, never was told. And then the person that this is about, Michael Chong stands up and says, I spoke to your national security advisor in 1921. And you can bet there is a some kind of a record, an empirical yeah. record of the telephone yeah. call because people don't meet behind, you know, with a lunch bag over their head uh, outside in the park to share exchanges when you're a national member of parliament or a security advisor. It's all done by the phone or by email and they track them, they have logs. So my point is, Mr. Trudeau is, whether you like him or not, he's not handling, he's doing exactly the opposite of what you should do when you're in a crisis of this magnitude. That's one thing, and I agree 100% with you, Ian. But beyond that, he's throwing a Canadian institution under the bus while he, clo while he accuses the opposition of creating divisiveness and lack of trust in our own institutions. Right. He's done the same thing. There's a um, liberal convention this weekend in um, Ottawa. How is this not going to be center stage? Uh, let me go further, uh, because I think it's worse than that. Some people, and I'm sure there are, I've seen some of the, uh, t you know, the, the comments in some of the stories at the end of the Globe and Mail. Some people say, oh, it's just, you know, it's just politics. Don't get sure. your knickers in a knot. Here's my take. Our allies, and I'm talking principle of the United States, we're joined at the hip. People don't like that? Too bad. Suck it up. We are joined at the hip. We share a, a border that's like 8,000 kilometers long or something. We always have. We have, we're integrated in terms of our trade treaties, our defense treaties, and so forth. And don't think that the Americans are stupid. Don't think that the British or the French or the Germans are dumb. They're not. There's really smart people at the tops of these governments. They're following this and they know what he is doing. They know that he was given that information. So they are losing confidence. Our closest allies are losing confidence in the ability of the Prime Minister of Canada to lead one of the 10 largest societies, economies in the world. And so this, because you know, he can get out there and spin it and there's lots of people that don't know how it all works and they say, oh yeah, okay, I, I like it. He's got a nice smile, I agree. You can't con the American national security establishment. You can't con the CIA. You know, you can't con the five eyes. They're smart people, highly trained, experienced people. And he is really blowing up the confidence of our allies in our the government of Canada to lead on this issue, to lead to lead the country. I want to keep talking about this, but I can't let you go without talking about the CRA strike and a tentative yeah. deal. We got a minute left. Uh, does it matter at this point? Well, I mean, um, it, it, I predicted talking to you two or three or four days ago. I said, uh, because I know how Ottawa, I've lived here all my life. I've studied, I've written on downsizing. I published papers on this um, uh, on the 1995 downsizing, on the Harper downsizing. Um, I, the Treasury Board was not going to turn around after giving uh, 10, 11.5 to the PSAC main strikers and then turn around and give 30 or 20% to the CRA strikers. Not going to happen. And I predicted that. I said there was not a snowball's chance in hell that that was going to happen. In fact, I, I did what I went out on a limb. It wasn't a limb at all. I said they're going to get basically the same deal that they gave PSAC. For the obvious reason that if you gave them a lot more, PSAC would turn around and say, wait a minute, yeah. we asked for that and you said it wasn't on the table. And then you turn around and give it to the CRA workers. Now we want to come back and reopen it and you give us what you just gave the CRA. So they set the precedent 
And so they had to stick to their own decision. And that's why it was inevitable that the CRA workers were going to get essentially the same offer, which they did, that the PSAC settled with, settled on. So it was inevitable what happened, that they were not going to get 20 or 15 or something like that. They were going to get the same deal that PSAC got, and they did. Uh, a couple of seconds left. So what do you think is going to happen in Ottawa this weekend at the convention? Well, there's going to be an attempt to really change the conversation. You know, Hillary Clinton's coming here and, you know, she's a big, you know, a huge brand, big yeah. meaning important, you know, a, a very important person. And uh, uh, in her own right, you know, as a senator, as as a, a candidate, mm-hmm. a national candidate for public office. And uh, so that, that they're going to try and change the conversation. Of course, Carney, they're bringing in all the big shots. Um, and so they're trying to get the media to focus on that because they think, I think falsely, uh, that they can change the conversation. They will change the conversation for about 72 hours. And back on next Monday or Tuesday, we'll be back talking about this this incredible crisis of confidence um, concerning foreign governments that are um, undermining and uh, trying uh, t- uh, the Canadian democracy. And uh, this is not going away. And he's got he's got an enormous problem on his hands. Dr. Ian Lee with his associate professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. As always, Ian, thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. The public sector union representing uh, Canada Revenue Agency uh, have reported today that they have struck a tentative deal. Basically, it looks like similar to what the other union has received. Let's bring in Henry Jasek, professor of political science at McMaster University. He is with us now. Henry, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am. Thank you. So your thoughts, uh, any surprise here? Many were thought these two would get wrapped up uh, quite quickly together. Uh, Obviously, CRA staying out, coming from a different point, I understand. Uh, But it looks like now uh, happiness all around. Well, yeah, I do. I do think it is. I was quite surprised that uh, uh, the union uh, president there said, well, uh, the deal that they had negotiated with with the government was as good as they were going to get, so there was no sense being on strike anymore. So I thought that was quite an interesting thing for him to say, uh, and because especially, especially because the main financial uh, demand that he, that he had, they got less than half of that. So, but, so he's basic, but he's basically telling them we can't get any more, so we just might as well you know, take what, what's given. Uh, pretty hard to get something different than the other union has had, fearing they'll come back and ask for the same. Yeah, well, that's always a problem, of course, is one union, once one union gets something, and if you have another union that's as well organized and um, in, in, the, in a pretty good position, position, political position in terms of where their members are and things, yeah, it, it, then, then that union tends to, you know, say, I want the same thing. And, you know, you always, you know, you can always know when there's a, a you know, when people are bargaining, one of the first things I want to know is who, who are they trying to catch up with? You know, who's their mom? Model. and uh, and then you'll then then you see you see that they'll they're trying to do it and then you see how close do they get to to what the uh, their model uh, uh, union is uh, is uh, getting considering where we are and what has transpired over the last couple of weeks are you, are what are your thoughts on how this strike has uh, ended up well, I think it, you know I I suspected it was going to end up like this. I didn't realize they were going to split the two groups together, but it's not. But they're so similar in terms of what they're going to get, and so that that I didn't quite see. But I I did expect that this would this would be like you know this is about the time period that they would go, uh, and I also expected that in fact uh, that they would you know they were gonna they weren't going to get anywhere near the money uh, uh, increase that they were expecting, but they had to get something and. Then there was, of course, you, you know, the the government uh, sort of looks and say, well, what other things do you have a problem with? Let's uh, let's try to do give you some of that, and uh, you know, and and they just take the whole package and they say. Oh. You know, we we've won, <laughs> so it's a, that that that's how it. You know, that's how I I expected it would wind up. Uh, I can't let you go without asking your your opinion on what has transpired over the last twenty four hours in regard to MP Michael Chong and obviously the threats against his family uh, by an operative working here uh, as a diplomat. Uh, that diplomat now has been called before the uh, uh, from the embassy to uh, appear before Melanie Jolie and such. Uh, but basically, the prime minister said yesterday and was advising CSIS what they have to do moving forward because he didn't get this information. And 
here we have in the House of Commons today Michael Chong standing up and saying that you're spreading false information. Another article from the Globe and Mail today saying, contrary to what the Prime Minister just uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said, a 2021 intelligence report about an MP being targeted by China was circulated beyond the uh, CSIS and reached the PM's National Security Advisor. Um, and, and apparently this was all from July 20th of 2021. Uh, contradicting um, what Ceases and Michael Chong are saying. Where does this go? Where does this go, Henry? Uh, is this a crisis? Well, this is, this is a problem. I mean, the whole issue is a problem. Uh, it's, a, it's a very difficult problem because essentially we do know that there is intimidation uh, by the Chinese government towards people who are living in Canada and usually, you know, and the threat to harm your relatives back in, in China is, is one that a lot of these people worry about. And they, they that's, I think it does muzzle a lot of, uh, you know, people, chi- people in Chinese background who come from China who don't, you know, say, they just have to say, you know, I just want to keep my head low. I don't want to say anything that is going to get my relatives uh, in trouble in China. And that, that that's a problem. It, that, but that's happening to Canadian citizens, I think is, you know, that 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 really is very, very unfortunate. Um, and we all know that, you know, there's lots of ways to get caught in the weeds here and what everybody's role is and such. Yeah. But at the end of the day, the buck stops with the prime minister and he's been caught spreading misinformation that CSIS yeah. didn't tell him. And today, another article from the Globe and Mail and Michael Chong saying, standing up and saying uh, that's not the case, that, uh, you know, it's different information than what you're saying. How do you how do you go from here? Where where do you go from here? Well, it, it, sometimes this is a bit difficult. I mean, it may have come up to, you know, his advisor at that time, and, and a number of things might have happened. I mean, sometimes his advisors say, well, uh, this is, we're, we're not going to bother the prime minister with this. And oh, we, don't man. Know, we don't know whether that happened or not. Or he may have forgotten about it. Or maybe he's fudging the facts. You know, it's very hard to, at this point, I think, to know what exactly happened there. Should he have known about it? I think we probably would say yes. Uh, Liberal convention this weekend in Ottawa. How is this not the main issue, the main topic on the agenda? Yeah, I, I, I certainly think there's a number of people going to be worried worried about it. And... Uh, you know, it, it is, it's a really, dip, you know, there is a large Chinese, you know, population that has come to Canada and become good citizens and, and, mm-hmm. and all that. And, you know, this, this is very difficult for them. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's hard, you know, the, the government, I just think, has to probably be a lot, of more, a lot more open on this and transparent. People should know what's going on and essentially, you know, the riot act has to be you know written to, given to the you know the chinese officials who come over here supposedly in a in a, in a uh, way to represent their country but they shouldn't be involved in trying to you know intimidate uh, canadian citizens of chinese background that has to be made very very strongly to those people and i and i think probably if i'd fault anything with the government i would say they they probably haven't done that enough they really, Henry, really need to tell the Chinese, you know, officials, you just can't do that here or else we're going to send you back home to China. Henry Jasek, professor of political science, McMaster University. As always, Henry, thanks for the time. Be well. OK, very good, Scott. Bye bye. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on Hamilton's News. Today's talk. 900 CHML. We remember during the height of the global pandemic and then finally realizing we had to stand in line for vaccine, uh, which was being processed, what have you, in other parts of uh, the world. And, um, and, and, and we were sort of caught with our pants down on, on several fronts. Uh, we now find out that the premier has announced, uh, Ontario Premier Doug Ford has announced that Moderna is partnering with a facility in Cambridge, Ontario to complete the final steps of manufacturing for its mRNA vaccines. Uh, the province putting $4 million towards the project. Uh, Novocall Pharma is set to prepare and package respiratory mRNA vaccines for distribution in Ontario and elsewhere in Canada. To talk more about all of this, Dr. Omar Khan is with us, Assistant Professor with the Institute of Biomedical Engineering and Department of Immunology, University of Toronto, and is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. 
I'm doing well, thanks. We remember this conversation uh, during the height of the global pandemic and, and, you know, waiting for vaccine to arrive and going down through age group and, and et cetera and such. What are your thoughts on, on this announcement today? This is great news. We have a couple of things in play right now. Right now, we have Moderna building a multi-purpose plant in Quebec. And this is great because it's going to make all of the parts they need for these vaccines. And then they'll be filled and finished, which means they'll be put into those bottles that have all the correct labels and all the right languages, all done Mm. in this Cambridge facility, which means from start to finish, we can potentially make vaccines for Canadians here. And that's great. So we don't have to wait in line for it to come from somewhere else. So obviously uh, this brought to everybody's attention during the global pandemic and such, but uh, this uh, uh, this uh, facility will go on to make other vaccines, other uh, uh, medications that, that are uh, directed toward respiratory illness. Is that accurate? Well, the facility is multi-use, so anybody can use them to make their product, and mm-hmm. they have contracted with Moderna to make some of their products, which means put them in the vials so that the doctor can then take that and inject you. So they're doing a few things for sure, because they are a company that does this type of bottling for everyone. Um, But in terms of what companies like Moderna can do at their Quebec plant, they can for sure make uh, vaccines against respiratory virus and hopefully other things too as they come along. And uh, so with all that, what this all means is that we have capacity. Um, some are saying, what happens now if we don't get another global pandemic, or is that just a matter of time? Well, I think we don't need a global pandemic to need the capacity to make vaccines. What we are yeah. seeing is that these yeah. mRNA vaccines are really safe and effective. So, in fact, we could probably expect a lot of new vaccines that are coming out to be the mRNA format. So, mm-hmm. whether that's a new types of flu vaccines, or any other type of vaccine we might be uh, we might need those can all be manufactured in these types of facilities and that's great so think about it this way as vaccine technology has improved so is our ability to make vaccines for other things and we expect that mrna vaccines will be around in, in multiple forms not just COVID, not just these respiratory vaccines but we can probably see for other things some of the things on the horizon are even cancer vaccines, right? Where you can potentially give this to people to help fight off cancer, which could be a really wonderful thing if that comes through. So there's a lot of opportunity here to give Canadians better healthcare. Um, you know, at one time we didn't have these companies like Moderna here. Uh, why are these companies coming here now? Why are these opening up now? There's a, a, a lot of great reasons. A lot of the mRNA vaccines, the Pfizer and BioNTech ones, as well as the Moderna one, it all relied on actually Canadian technology. Hmm. So Canadians invented a lot of the nanoparticle technology that was used to deliver the mRNA. And so that innovation, that ecosystem of making these these great technologies has always been here. We just didn't make things here other than those fundamental components. But now, with the ability to assemble everything together, that is completely different. So we have this new capacity to make things. So I think previously here in Canada, again, we didn't manufacture things because the the seats of a lot of these companies that were leading the way, like Moderna and Pfizer, they are mainly in the U.S. and they had other distribution partners and manufacturing partners at these big hubs in other parts of the world. Mm -hmm. So they already had places to make this. Now we are one of those places, which is great for us because, again, it comes down to capacity. So are we, do you feel confident now, doctor? Are we in good shape or still more work to be done here? No, I think this is the right direction for everything because now we can domestically produce things, which is great. We won't necessarily be in the same queue. In fact, I, I would expect that what Moderna creates here in Canada will also be exported to the rest of the world. So we're not just Mm -hmm. serving Canadian needs, but also global needs. And this is really important. So we are now part of that solution as Canada. I think it's a great place for us to be. We have great healthcare here and we should be, you know, contributing to other people's ability to have great healthcare. Uh, Three years after COVID, your thoughts now. 
It really although it is, although it is walking. still here. I don't want to say it's not here anymore, but after three years of this, what are your thoughts? I think it's really shown us what happens with the way the world is, the world is working out. We have a really large population, a lot of people in close contact with each other and really efficient ways of traveling across the world. And that all means we are being exposed to things we weren't necessarily exposed to before. So having these extra tools to protect us so we can enjoy all this type of communication and travel is very important. So knowing, taking the lessons we did from the pandemic and now applying them here where we are able to rapidly make safe vaccines to help us kind of get through things is going to be very important. So a lot of hard lessons learned, but I think the upside of all this is that we have way better vaccines now, and this is great. Dr. Omar Khan with us, Assistant Professor, Institute of Biomedical Engineering and Department of Immunology, University of Toronto. Doctor, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Take care, everybody. Often when we have a guest on, and of course we always try to to accommodate, they'll they'll say, "Hey, can you play this as we go in?" You know, this is like an all request Friday. Um, but I think this is the first time that we ever we've ever played a guest band. Uh, what you heard there was the freaking Lolas, and that's Steve Jordan's band, professor of psychology, University of Toronto. He is with us now. Steve, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Thank you, Scott. Thank you for that uh, life-defining moment there. <laughs> <laughs> your life will never be cool. the same, Steve. You'll, My song's on the be, radio. That's, that's right. Cool. Your, phone, your phone will be ringing off the hook now. Yeah. Uh, oh, yes. How long has that band been together? Oh, 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 oh. I don't know. Tw- 20 years, maybe. There you 10, go. 20 years, yeah. Good for Long you guys. Time. That's what, yeah. and, and there's why it's important to have friends and, and other things to do that, uh, you know, so you can let loose and have a good time. So, Steve, one of the reasons uh, we're bringing you on, the Leafs are playing tonight, and, and a, a lot of Leaf fans want to see it. They want it really bad. They want the win. But, man, every time there's a loss, it's it's a big one because I, I don't know. Is it because we just <laughs> keep continuing to lose uh, time after time. Is it different uh, cheering for a team uh, that so often disappoints? Well, yeah, and and imagine playing for a team that so often disappoints. Yeah. It's, I think for all of us, for ourselves and for the players, the challenge is always how do we keep all those negative thoughts at bay? Because, I mean, for the fans, they're kind of – you know, a bummer or an annoyance that we kind of go back to for the players, they actually get in the way of good play. Uh, and so, yeah, there's, there's an art to, you know, really kind of taking control of your mind. I, I jokingly call it mind control, but not in the negative way in, in the empowering way. All right. So we should split this off one for the players, one for the fans. Let's start with the players. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, the, the Toronto fans can be pretty tough. Matter of fact, they got booed after their first game of the first series. How does a player come back from that? Yeah, I mean, I think the most important thing that, you know, if I could talk to the players that I would try to convince them of is they have the ability to control what is on their mind. I I sometimes use this analogy that our minds can seem like a television that's just on and that just changes channels all by itself. And in fact, it has a negative tendency when you just kind of let the mind do its thing, which is it looks for threats. It looks for dangers. And so if you're a player uh, and, you know, suddenly you're, you're starting to feel like, oh, I felt this before i know where this goes um Mm. that can bring your mind to that sort of you know negative space uh and will do so automatically but the important thing is there is a remote control um when people understand that they don't just have to passively allow their mind to go wherever with a little bit of effort a little bit of work and a little bit of habit building you can become much better at at repositioning your mind when it does go to that bad spot and instead getting it to a better place uh, I'm going to play devil's advocate here. Uh, what about those fans that say, hey, here's your incentive, your paycheck. This is your job. You are a professional to, and you're expected to operate at 100% all the time. Yeah. And, and, and in fact, that is exactly the point. So if, if that's what we want from them and if that's what they want to deliver, they need to get into that, what I call the winning mindset or people call it, call it the flow state. You know, that's the case. So they don't, they're not good 
because they're trying to be good. Um, when they're at their best, they're not trying at all. They are just sort of leaning back on all their skills and their practice and their training and, and doing the sort of natural thing. And that's when they look really good. When they start looking less good, that's usually because they are having some of these negative thoughts. They may be thinking, man, these fans are paying me so much money and I'm not delivering. Um, and that is what gets in the way and actually is the, the main source of the not so good play. So it's almost by not thinking about those fans and not worrying about those issues and instead just sort of getting their mind into that place where they are the player they want to be on the team they want to be. That's what gives them the performance that we all want to see. When you think about it, Steve, they're all phenomenal athletes. Otherwise, they wouldn't be there in the NHL. And then we see this, whether it's golf or any sport, is it all in the mind? I mean, we've seen lots of great teams. And people would point to Boston that just ended up flaming out in the end. Even my son's minor hockey. It's like, you know, wait till after Christmas. It's a different season. Wait till the playoffs. It's a different season. Yeah, I mean, I think the mind is the is the factor that determines who wins and who doesn't. As you say, they're all very good players. They're all very good teams, especially where we are now. And so the question is, which of those players and which of those teams will really play at their best? And that's probably the ones that are going to win. Um, and so, so one of the things I like to really point out to people is in order to sort of be able to change the channel um, in, in the way I'm describing, you have to know where you want to go. And that's the most important thing for the players is, okay, I know where I don't want to be. I know the thoughts I don't want to think about. And, and if they actually start thinking about them, they empower those thoughts. And so instead, what they need to be able to do is shift their mind. And so I recommend things like, like if, if I would love the ability to do this at some point, but if I had the power, I would, for each player, ask them a few questions. Who's the kind of player you want to be? Are there instances in your past play, specific games you can point to or periods where you felt you were that player are there what i call ancestors in the game are there players that you know maybe you want to be like a bobby Orr? you want to be his style of player or or you know larry robinson or whoever maybe i'm showing my age here i'm afraid mm. but um you know those ancestors and if we could build a video that included you know me at my best playing my best but also the other players that were successful that are like me that i would like to emulate and model and if i watch that video on a regular basis maybe even put it to some some sound maybe even organ music from a hockey game then what would mm -hmm. happen is when i'm on the ice and i hear that organ music playing that would help trigger my mind to say, oh, yeah, yeah, that's where I want to be. And that's where I have to get my mind to. Um, and that's the practice they would need to do is detecting when their mind is in the bad spot and then learning how to change the channel. Um, and that's very and much an exercise. And I think they would be in very good shape. And that's very much an exercise, like a meditation, whatever. That's it. You got to consciously do that, don't you, Steve? Yeah, because the natural behavior, as I mentioned before, is for the mind to go to dark places. So, so you mm. kind of have to reprogram that habit. And yes, that takes, first of all, an explicit attempt to do it and then repetition. You know, you have to kind of stick with it to build that new habit. Um, so it would certainly take a bit of work and time. All right. How do fans keep the spirit after a loss? <laughs> Well, I mean, I think what we all have to realize as fans is the role that sports plays in our life. It's supposed to be our sort of break from the stresses and anxieties yeah, of daily good life. Good point. Yeah, and, and when when it is the source of stress, you know, when we're actually feeling, wow, that is negatively affecting my my mood state, and I'm going through my life now disgruntled because of watching that game. You know, that should be a signal to ourselves that maybe we're taking that a little too seriously. Maybe we, we've forgotten the role that sport um, should play for us. Um, and and yeah, I, I was there once with the Blue Jays back, back in the day. Uh, if they didn't play well, I had a horrible day and I actually had to pull back <laughs> from that. Uh, and I think it was a good thing. Uh, so for anybody that's in that situation, it's hard when it's the Leafs in the playoffs. We're all a little bit there, right? But, um, but that's the sort of thought process I would have people kind of think. Steve Jordan's with us, professor of psychology, University of Toronto. Being a Leaf fan or a Leaf player, it uh, requires some work. Steve, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott. And thanks again for the song playing. I really appreciate that. Oh, anytime. And let us know when uh, L.A. calls and you're off and we can't book you anymore for these uh, segments. Fantastic. we Will do. 
You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. As it turns out, uh, Ed Sheeran wins. Eric Elber with us, music publicist and commentator with us now. Eric, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Uh, I am. Actually, you caught me at a good time. I just finished writing my very first song called Let's Get It On, Ed Sheeran. <laughs> uh, and it sounds very remarkable to both of them. Uh, now, did you do it? Or did you? Up. Yep. Now, did you do it or was it AI that did this for you? No, I did it because I want the lawsuit because I figured that what better free publicity than to be sued by two of the biggest music stars in music history. So, yeah, so, this was an interesting one. It doesn't. This was interesting because there's not a lot of of musicians that have been sued um, for plagiarizing that have won. In fact, I can only think of less than a handful. The most recent one was a band called Spirit that sued Led Zeppelin over uh, Stairway to Heaven. Led Zeppelin won. But other than that, when you go to court, it's usually not in the defendant's favor. So this was an interesting one. Now, what's the difference between this case and that of Robin Thicke with his song and the same thing, the Marvin Gaye estate suing him? Was that one much closer than this one is or isn't? Are they different? Yeah, what it really comes down to is there's a simple chord progression. It's the one, three, four, five chord progression that what um, that kind of build the basis for, oh, I don't know, a thousand songs that we all know and love, including Benny King's Stand By Me, among others. And so that's the chord progression that the gay uh, family or the gay writers family uh, said that um, that they were infringing upon. But what was more interesting i think than than i think anything was that the 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 co-writer of the song their hairs were the ones that were suing so it wasn't really marvin gaye's kind of camp it was ed uh. it was ed townsend's um uh uh daughters um they didn't sue based on the final version of the song what they were suing based on because they don't own the final version of the song they were going based on a draft copy that ed townsend had written that marvin gaye then took to make the final version of the song so that was i think the big difference it wasn't like that you can play both finished versions and say see it's similar because the townsend family doesn't own the final version they just own a basically a bunch of like you know music and notes and lyrics that began to turn into the final version Wow. So um, you're wondering how this even got to court then. Uh, Ed Sheeran said said if if he lost, he would quit music. Does this case, does this set a precedent now? Yeah, that's essentially why I went to court was because uh, when you are, when you have a hit, it's so easy now for other people halfway around the world or smaller artists or independent artists or big artists to know that song because we all have access now to 80 million songs at our disposal thanks to iTunes or YouTube or Spotify. So before social media came along, somebody could copy your song and there was a really good chance that you would never hear it in your whole life. Mm. Now we have fans that are working on behalf of their favorite artist saying, hey, you're ripping off this song. You should be canceled. So you end up with um, completely different motivating times. And when you're Ed Sheeran and you've sold over 150 million records in your career, sometimes you want to settle out of court because it's really expensive to go to court. But sometimes you are just so offended by this that you don't want to settle out of court and show that you might even have a guilty mind. You want to actually fight it in court. And although that Ed Mm. Sheeran said that, he would quit um, music if he was found guilty because he was like, if I can be found guilty and something like this, then so many thousands of songwriters should be shaking in their boots because we're using all of the exact same chord sequence. And, you know, rock and roll isn't 20 years old anymore. It's like 70 <laughs> pop music when it's based out of like this is this is only going to grow, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Unfortunately, I think it's going to be one of those things where, you know, um, right after that that court case ended and the decision came down, Ed Sheeran walked over to the plaintiffs, which included the daughter of Ed Townsend. Um, They talked for about 10 minutes and then they hugged and they smiled at each other. The Mm. only thing that I can think of in that was said in those 10 minutes is either I can't wait until you get the bill for my lawyers or (laughs) um, 
you know, you might have not caught me, but believe me, there are others out there that you can go sue and probably win because there's only just like, you know, it's a little bit different than saying, well, there's only 26 letters in the alphabet, but look at all the words that we can create with hmm. notes. There's only a certain amount of notes that are available and there's only a certain amount of songs that are that can use those notes in order to create something pleasing to the ear. So this is going to be something I think more and more. And then you're going to bring an AI into this like yeah. you do. And then all of a sudden you have a whole bunch of, of musicians trying to sue AI. So now who do you sue? The creators, yeah. Spotify? Do you create Go do you sue Google? Do you create the program maker of this? So this is I think gonna open up even though they had Sharon one, I think it's it's gonna be the last that we're gonna be talking about court cases like this. Eric Alper with us, music publicist and commentator. Ed Sheeran has won his Thinking Out Loud copyright case, uh, defending accusations of plagiarism of Marvin Gaze. Let's get it on. Eric, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you so much. We'll talk soon. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Ontario NDP distancing, uh, distancing itself from a post of a newly elected MPP on social media uh, that mourned the death of a Palestinian hunger striker associated with a terrorist group, saying that neither the party nor the member of the provincial parliament share those views. Uh, so not the party or the member. And then that was gone. There was really no comment from Sarah Jama on this, who, of course, replaced Andrea Horvath uh, in Hamilton when that that seat became available, Hamilton Center, and Andrea moved on to uh, the mayor's seat. To talk more about all of this, Larry DeAnne is with us, former mayor, city of Hamilton, and here now. Larry, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am well, Scott, and I hope uh, you are well also. So far, so good. Your thoughts on this brouhaha? We remember during the actual campaign that this came up and people were concerned. Uh, uh, Sarah Jama had stated that, you know, I'm representing all people, blah, blah, blah. And then this uh, tweet uh, goes up. She retweets it. Then both her and the uh, the party pull it down. Um, damage done. How, how do you uh, I had one person say two strikes, three, you're out. Where do you go from here? Well, um, I, I don't know um, whether, um, you know, three strikes and you're out in this case. It seems to me that uh, Ms. Jama is repeating uh, a philosophy and an attitude that uh, she has uh, long espoused in terms of support for the Palestinian cause in the Middle East. Um, so she's not changing that. What's 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 anus about um, this particular tweet uh, and some of the things that she said in the past uh, isn't so much her support for the Palestinian cause. Lots of people do that. But at the same time, it's the not only criticism, but the vitriol aimed at Israel. And so retweeting this tweet um, which which called a leader of a terrorist group, at least a group that's recognized as a terror group in by Canada, uh, by retweeting that elevates the individual from being a terrorist uh, to somehow being heroic in what he did um, in, in terms of the uh, in terms of the hunger strike. So consequently, uh, it just raises the stakes for her again and embarrasses the party because the party um, has distanced itself yet again from a statement that she made. And you have to wonder um, why she's involved in, in politics that have nothing to do with her role as a legislator uh, yeah. in the province of Ontario. I mean, the purview of international relations, of course, are in a different legislature and not uh, and not the Ontario one. One can have opinions, of course, uh, and one can support whatever cause they want. But when you are a sitting member of a party, you also represent that party. And if you uh, if in representing that party you say something that the party has to distance itself from, then you're embarrassing that party. And and that's happened now um, a number of times. Um, um, and that's too bad because, listen, I, I was at Queen's Park for question period uh, just this, uh, not this Monday, a week ago Monday, 
I happened to be there with a group that we were touring around. And so consequently, consequently, um, I, I, I listened to Sarah ask a question. It was an intelligent question as well. And so if she does her job, that's one thing. But if she embarrasses her party, then it's going to it's going to uh, uh, bring the party into disrepute. And that's not good for her or the party. What about those that voted for her? Because, as you said, these aren't city issues. Uh, how would they react? I mean, do they care because it is an international issue? It doesn't involve the city. It's not one, you know, uh, how, how do you how do you digest this? Well, you know, they should care. Um, you know, they want their member that they just elected to focus on the issues that uh, that are important to them. I don't think that Sarah's um, philosophy in this regard is representative of what most in her party feel about, even though obviously she feels strongly about it. And it's okay to talk about human rights, but again, uh, talk about human rights if you want, uh, but don't don't um, uh, glorify an individual that's associated with a leadership of terror, because that that isn't something I'm sure that the voters in Ward in her uh, in her writing of Hamilton Center uh, would espouse. However, it came up during the election. Either people were not paying attention or didn't really care about that. Um, mm-hmm. They supported her and she won by a very healthy margin. So you got to wonder whether the news is filtering down to them or whether if she keeps uh, going to the same well uh, at some point even people in her writing are going to uh, think that this is not appropriate behavior from from our member and that would be a shame i i can tell you this though uh, that that um, not only in in terms of hamilton center but there are other parts uh, of of the city with ndp representation where the Jewish community, which is outraged at this the most, um, uh, lives, and and they may take it out on the NDP in in any future election. So so Ms. Jama has to realize that her behavior may affect friends of hers, colleagues of hers, comrades of hers uh, in the same party, and that and that would be a shame um, uh, if people were to take it out on somebody else. But at some point, people are going to say, look, um, I'm going to follow uh, the, the uh, connect the dots here. And if the NDP party doesn't do something stronger, other than to say she really doesn't believe in this, when clearly she does, uh, they may say, well, it, the party's the problem and not just this member. Larry Deani with us, former mayor, city of Hamilton. Sarah Jama elected to replace uh, leader, uh, former leader Andrea Horbath in the riding of Hamilton Center, retweeting a anti-Semitic post that now has been pulled down. Larry, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You too. Take care. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Lots going on uh, in Ottawa, whether it's a liberal convention, whether it's the stuff around Michael Chong or the prime minister's uh, brother testifying before committee. Let's bring in Duff Conacher, co-founder of Democracy Watch. He's with us now. Duff, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Hope you are as well. Duff, are we at a turning point here? Uh, yesterday, over the Michael Chong affair and the targeting of his family uh, from the Chinese Communist Party or operatives here, um, uh, the Prime Minister came right out and said, I've now commanded that ceases, uh, basically threw them under the bus, saying they've got to get this information up through the ranks and blah, 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 basically blaming ceases for him not knowing until Monday about any of this. And then Michael Chong stands up in the House of Commons today and says that he has, uh, in fact, talked to uh, uh, the National Security Advisor and that simply was not the case and that this information was passed up the chain uh, back in July of 2020. What are your thoughts of these two conflicting stories? I mean, and another report in the Globe and Mail today, CSIS report on MP being targeted by China, was sent to the Prime Minister's National Security Advisor uh, and the fact that the Security Advisor and the Prime Minister's versions of events are greatly different. Yes. Uh, well, what can you say? More questions raised every time Justin Trudeau speaks. More seem to be upset about this this time, though, Duff. Is this a turning point, do you think? Uh, well, he still has his friend, uh, unethically, David Johnston, judging uh, his friend Trudeau's actions. 
and he can cover it up. Uh, he did it before for Stephen Harper uh, when Stephen Harper asked him to set the terms of reference for a public inquiry into Brian Mulroney and Carl Heinz Schreiber and the whole Airbus scandal. He said, oh, look at everything except the biggest part of the scandal, Airbus. So David Johnson's done this before for a prime minister, and he wasn't friends with Harper. He is an old family friend with Trudeau. We filed a complaint with the Ethics Commissioner that Trudeau violated the Conflict of Interest Act by giving, handing a government contract that pays well, uh, $1,400 to $1,600 a day, to his fr- family friend. But what about, the, and, and again, we... Yeah, we know these yeah, we know these issues in regard we know the issues in regard to the, the special rapporteur and such but what about these these uh, actions of, of yesterday and today where the prime minister is saying that CSIS knew, needs to do a better job of getting this information to him and the national security advisor says yes CSIS did send this to various departments including uh, the national security advisor and the privy council's office so th- there's conflict information from two very, very prominent people here. Which one is correct? We don't know, and that's why we need a public inquiry. Uh, Katie Telford, the Prime Minister Trudeau's chief of staff, said that the Prime Minister is informed about everything and reads everything. Hmm. That's what she said under, uh, you know, testifying before the Parliamentary Committee. And Michael Chong is saying that the security advisor said this information was passed on. And his chief of staff says that he is reads everything that he's, he's given. So even within the PMO, you have a contradictory mm. information. The prime minister contradicting essentially two of his own staff people um, who are there actually and know that their role is to protect him. So the fact mm. that they would not be protecting him, but actually saying, no, he is given everything and he reads everything he's given. Uh, it just shows, I think, that he is probably misleading, as he did in the SNC-Lavalin scandal and many others. He, you know, he had eight lines in the SNC-Lavalin scandal, and all of them were untrue. And then finally, the ninth time he was asked, months later, he finally told the truth but still tried to spin it as if it was fine, even though it was a violation of the law. So what can I say? Uh, the Liberals this, on Saturday uh, at the convention, the Liberal Party of Canada-Alberta division has proposed that uh, Liberals endorse a call for a truth in politics law. And uh, so hopefully the party will vote for that and Liberals will put in place a, well, it's only gonna cover political advertising, but it should cover everything. False claims should be illegal, and there should be a very high fine for misleaders, because we need leaders, not misleaders. Otherwise, you don't solve any problems in society, and you end up with corruption, waste, and abuse of the public interest that is then covered up by people's lies. Will this take over the Liberal Convention this weekend? Will this become part of the agenda? Will people be saying, you know what, Uh, this has gone way too far, time to do something? It'll be interesting to see because uh, Trudeau will conveniently not be there most of the time as he's headed to London for the coronation of King Charles. And maybe his absence <laughs> will, uh, people will feel more emboldened to push on some of these things. Um, there has been expressions quoted in the media, MPs and others, dissatisfied with how he handles these kinds of things and, and how... He also steps in it by doing things like going to a rich person's estate in Jamaica for Christmas, and there's big questions about whether he he paid anything for that or whether it was a big favor from this family. So lots and lots of questions. He's shown he has an ethical deficit in the past and shown that he will mislead and, and try and spin his way out of almost any situation. Uh, and so that's why we need a public inquiry. He cannot choose the inquiry commissioner. That is the number mm-hmm. one thing that has to happen. Mm. He cannot control the choice of who looks into and judges his own actions. That has to stop across the board. No more choosing inquiry commissioners, ethics commissioners, information commissioners, lobbying commissioners, auditor generals, chief electoral officers. All of those people have to be selected by all the party leaders so that we end up with good people who are watchdogs, not lapdogs who protect the prime minister and don't enforce the law properly. 
Um, let's switch gears to the Prime Minister's brother testifying at the uh, Committee on uh, Chinese Interference. He said he can't believe uh, anyone cares about Chinese interference, going on to say, frankly, this is a waste of time. What are your thoughts? It was an unbelievable performance. I'm not sure who he thinks he's fooling. He's not fooling anybody. Um, and to say that he didn't think that these people who were linked, and it was known they were linked to the, the government of China at the time they gave the money, were honorable people. He actually said that hmm. uh, in his testimony. And that there was no nothing to do with political influence uh, happening with the donation of $140,000, $200,000 promise, $140,000 actually donated. Even though this company that said, hey, it's a Canadian company and we're, we're not Canadians, but it's our Canadian company and we're giving mm-hmm. the money. And he used some obscure legal ruling to say, hey, corporations can donate on behalf of people, as if that excuses <laughs> it. And then they asked to have the the uh, address to where the receipt is sent changed, and it ends up being sent to an uh, uh, address in China. <laughs> and he says, yeah. this is all fine and well. I mean, this is just a layer cake of conflicts of interest. Morris Rosenberg yeah. The fact that Trudeau turned to him to look into whether the foreign interference uh, uh, protocol had worked properly. I mean, just conflict of interest after conflict of interest, because Trudeau will always choose lapdogs to look into his own actions, and which means it has to be made illegal for him and any prime minister to do that, mm-hmm. because they will always choose people who will cover things up and, and try to protect them instead of actually do their job properly and enforce the law and uphold it. Jeff Conacher with us, co-founder of Democracy Watch, talking about the Prime Minister's brother uh, testifying yesterday and, of course, the mess the Prime Minister finds himself in today in regard to the Michael Chong affair. Duff, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Take care. Joining us now, Scott Radley, host of The Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is coming up after the 6 o'clock news. And with us now, Scott, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am delightful. How are you? Oh, very good. Okay, next chapter to the story we've been talking about forever. Um, uh, Michael Chong, MP, his family being harassed by operatives within the Chinese Communist Party here in Ontario. Um, And the Prime Minister stood up yesterday and basically threw CSIS under the bus, said, I've commanded them now to bring this stuff to my attention uh, right away, uh, that it didn't get up the chain of command, and, and basically said it was CSIS' fault. Today, another article in the Globe and Mail, as well as uh, MP Chong standing up in the House of Commons and saying that is not true, that uh, the National Security Advisor, who he had a telephone conversation with, uh, told him that in July 20th of 2021, this information went to various departments, including uh, the Privy Council office and and such uh, of the Prime Minister, and that he did, in fact, get the information, as opposed to finding out on Monday when the rest of us did. What are your thoughts now? It's not so much about believing this or believing that, but two high-profile people contradicting each other. Is it the Canadian institution? Is it the Prime Minister? So you would think that there would be some kind of document that would back this up, whether it's an email or a letter or something that would have come out from CSIS to the prime minister's office or whomever else uh, that would say this. And uh, again, I'm assuming that would be the case because there usually is. Yes. If that exists and if that is produced... This is one, you know, you and I have talked about how this prime minister has generally been Teflon and nothing has stuck and all the rest. And a wordsmith. This one might be one that causes him some problems because it was both he and his minister in the House of Commons very clearly no, you know, 
fussing around, just very clearly said something that if this is true and if there is a document that would show that the other side is true and they were not telling the truth, and the Prime Minister was not in the House of Commons today, but his uh, public safety minister was and mm-hmm. once again reiterated this, if this document, and it's going to take the document, Scott, that's it's going to be required, it's not going to be word of mouth or, or one he said, she said, if this document can be produced... This might be, in my mind, the first time that this prime minister is really in a pickle. Now, that said, we also saw photos of the prime minister wearing blackface, and that didn't do anything. <laughs> so maybe maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you oh, could bring out a document man. as well as every single member of CSIS and you know everything else. I don't know. He, there may be nothing. But to me, this seems like it's now black or white. It's this side or it's the other. There's no middle ground anymore. And if it's proven, proven that the prime minister stood in the House of Commons and told something that was absolutely not the truth, which other people would call a lie, that's a problem. That, that to me, becomes a, a problem that now it's more than just, oh, well, we're just going to put out another tweet saying, hey, we support a woman's right to choose. Because this is the other thing. That happens every time. Now, have you ever noticed that? Every time now the government, this government gets in trouble, wait for Twitter to have a tweet from Katie Telford or someone else to come out within five minutes saying, we support a woman's right to choose. Yeah, exactly. Looking for that one wedge yeah. that will always yeah. rise to their defense. Uh, we'll yeah. see. We'll see. But I, I, you know that everybody on the conservative side is looking for that document. And here's, you and I talked about this yesterday, Scott. As soon as the prime minister threw CSIS under the bus... Yeah. There's a yeah. lot of people now at yeah. CSIS who will also be looking for that document to make sure the conservatives get it if it exists. Well, again, uh, this has already been confirmed by Jody Thomas, the National Security Invi- uh, Advisor, and the CSIS head, David Vigneault, yep. confirmed yep. to Mr. Chong in a briefing this week. So CSIS has said, the National Security Advisor has said, they got the information. But already go on Twitter Scott, and you will find those who still stand with the Prime Minister on everything. You know, say, it's fascinating. This was never made public. In a briefing, how do we know he's telling the truth yeah, in a briefing? Yeah. So you, well, you're going to have to have it delivered in a way that is unimpeachable yeah. for people mm. to maybe, some people, to maybe buy it. And he wonders why people are feeling divided. He wonders why people are questioning our Canadian institutions when he is just thrown one under the bus. It's unbelievable. All right. Uh, have a great show. Thank you. You Well, I was going to say you as well, but you have had no, a great I'm show. No, I'm done. So, yeah, I'm you're done. good. <laughs> Thank you, Scott. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. This one from Rick on email. I wish more radio hosts, journalists, or even people in general would speak out about the corruption that is going on. You can bet Bill C-11, the Trudeau duct tape bill, will start silencing the truth. So say as much as you can about it while you still can. Rick.